When European explorers came to the African Great Lakes region in the late, mid to late 18th century, this is the 1700s, explorers from England and France began to show up in Africa. It's not easy to put ourselves maybe in this position, but the locals needed a word for them. All of a sudden, these white people showed up out of nowhere, planting flags, assembling things they'd never seen before, running about. And native Africans in countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Uganda, uh, Uganda observed the newcomers and started calling them Mzungus. This word literally means one who wanders around aimlessly. The word actually comes from the Kiswali term Zungu, which, mean a person, which means a person who spins around in circles. This was the word they described to ascribe to these explorers. <laughs> it's one who spins about in circles. The word is actually still used today. If you go to countries like Rwanda or Uganda in the Great Lakes region of Africa, you will hear this term if you're a white person placed upon you, a Mzungu. It, while it might be a little, um, you know, demeaning in certain ways, it's actually mostly a playful term. I got to know this term when I got to know Rwandans. For many years, I was fortunate enough to be in partnership with uh, an incredible organization in Rwanda, and I got to know that term from their perspective. Like going to Mexico and being called a gringo, if you go as a white person into the Africa Great Lakes region, you should expect to be called a Mzungu. And I've learned to embrace this term from my friends over time to understand a little bit of my culture, to understand a little bit of the anxiety that I bring to certain particular places. As I've gotten to be friends with people who are not Mzungus, <laughs> I started to realize an important truth about my culture, which is that white people really can't relax. <laughs> we really have a hard time. <laughs> it's a terrible thing that we spin about aimlessly, that we spin in circles, that we wander about. We are great at toiling, at spiraling. And it was out of actually that dominant European culture that uh, ended up kind of emerging in America. And many of us, even if you're not white, which many of you are not white, you felt the pressure of us Mzungus who spin and toil in circles, who wander aimlessly throughout the earth. We rarely get as much done as we'd like to, and yet what we get done often hurts people. Does this describe some of your days sometimes, wandering aimlessly, spinning about in a circle, toiling? I it's the day where you've been so busy to no time to sit that you have nothing to accomplish. It's working hard all day to come home to a cluttered house. It's working your hardest in a class only to get a D as you approach finals week. More dramatically, maybe, it's the restless mind that many of us adopt, that our culture, in the Mzungu culture, has downloaded into all of our brains. A restless mind, a heart that cannot stop beating quickly, an uncontrollable physiology that keeps your mind spinning downward as you struggle to sleep. It's waking up in a panic. It's the feeling of the weight of the world on your shoulders even though it's not there. It's dread, impending doom. The feeling that you're certain nothing will work out or the people that matter to you so much will not like you. Spinning, toiling, wrapping yourself up in a circle, that's the anxious life. Nearly 20% of Americans, by the way, that's about 42 million people, just think about this. They've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. We're climbing towards a quarter of our population in America. 
and, and here's why, 40% of Americans say that they're more anxious at this point this year than they were last year, according to the American Psychiatric Association. This is why Jesus' word matters so much to us today. It's why we're in this series called Anxious. We've been walking through his teachings. His teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And if this is your first time with us, you're joining us in a six-month journey through the Sermon on the Mount. That we're taking little portions of it one by one to try to see what Jesus has to say. And this Sunday, we're actually in the center of this series called Anxious. Last week, we talked about this idea that if God is our singular devotion, if, he gives, if we give him our singular devotion, the rest of all of who we are will, will come after it. That if we seek first the kingdom of God, as we'll see today, everything else will be added unto us. But last week, we talked mostly about possessions and how those inform our anxiety. And this week, we're going to talk more pointedly about anxiousness. How do we make a living? How do we live in a Mzungu culture? How do we live in a culture that spins around aimlessly, that spirals into a circle? This is where Jesus' words today, I believe, are transformative. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Matthew 6, verse 25. And I was reminded when I read this passage this week of its power to stand alone. When I was um, in seminary, I had a professor who, before reading the Sermon on the Mount, said he often felt like when he preached or taught about the Sermon on the Mount, he felt like a guide at the Grand Canyon. In other words, it's really pointless what you say about it. The majesty of its vision stands alone. No one returns to the Grand Canyon because they loved that tour guide. People return for the majesty. And I really believe today, if you sit in this text with me, if I just read it over you, and the Holy Spirit allows you to receive it. There's a transcendent vision that my preaching will pale in comparison to. So would you listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 6, verse 25? He says to you, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, At the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's God's word. And today I just want to break this up into two sections. I want to tell you what Jesus is not saying, and then I want to tell you what Jesus is saying. Because when we talk about anxiety and we see this command, do not be anxious, a lot of us might be feeling 
things that Jesus is actually not saying. And so let's clean the text, and then let's look at the text. First, what is Jesus not saying? First, Jesus is not giving a simple solution to a complex problem. Jesus is not giving a simple solution to a complex problem. Many of you have probably heard, if, as you suffer with anxiety or you suffer being anxious or worrying, people say, oh, just don't worry about it. Just trust God. Oh, just pray about it. This is not what Jesus is doing. He's not handling this lightly. And as your pastor, I promise today to not play pop psychologist or wannabe therapist. I am not a mental health professional. What I can provide for you today is what I believe Jesus is providing for you, which is a theological lens with which to view your anxiety. You need that along with, some of you might need, a medical lens, a professional lens, someone who helps you see your anxiety from a clinical perspective. That's not what we're doing here today. That's not my job. My job is to provide for you what Jesus is going to say to your anxiety. And here's my thing. My, I, I believe you need both. Some of you will just need this theological lens, but others will need both. We are looking at the perspective of scripture, not clinicians. I love psychology, and many of you need to seek that help, as I said. However, that's not what we're here to do today. Two extremes I won't play with. One extreme, I'll diagnose you. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Other extreme, just pray about it. Jesus is not telling you to live a carefree life. He's not saying, don't worry, be happy. There's more richness here. The second thing Jesus is not saying, he's not telling starving and naked people to relax. You see, you often see, read this passage and you think about people who are starving, perhaps. I, I do. But the point we have to see is that Jesus, first and foremost, his audience was not those who were starving and naked. It was primarily, if you look at Matthew 5, verse 1, the primary audience for the Sermon on the Mount was his disciples, who would have been Galilean, lower middle class people. Jesus interacted with um, many starving people, many hurting people and suffering people, and he interacted with them in a different way. Beware of looking at man's transgressions and ascribing them to God. Beware of looking at history and seeing it in a pantheism. What I mean by that is throwing God across all of history. History, quote-unquote, is not the word we use for God's story. Redemption is. History is the story of man's sin, rebelling from God, killing each other, harming each other, casting political oppression that causes people to starve. God's story is redemption, taking history, reworking it for good. It's very important that, not every, that you understand not everything that happens in this world is God's will. The, second thing, or the third thing Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying we will have no anxiety. He's saying we'll have less. The word anxious here is merimnao, which is the Greek term for worry, concern, or anxiety. And it's actually used in your Bible for good things and bad things. It's okay to be anxious about things. Anxiety reveals you often care about something. Anxiety can have good connotations and come from a good place. For example, 1 Corinthians 7.32, Paul says it's good to be anxious for the things of the Lord. Also in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, he talks about, quote-unquote, the anxieties he has for all the churches. Or in Philippians 2, 20 and 28, Paul talks about genuine concern and anxiety for the well-being of other people. It's okay if you're anxious about your children. It's okay if you're concerned about the welfare of your roommate. It's okay for us to feel anxiety about the cares of the Lord. 
You see, the question before us is not what, uh, how do I get rid of my anxiety, but what do I do with my anxiety? See, anxiety is very closely related to fear, is it not? For example, we're not called to live a life with no fear. We're called instead to live a life of courage, which is how to act within the face of fear. And anxiety, similarly, it's not about being anxious or not being anxious. It's about what do we do with our anxieties? Do we take our anxieties about the future and then we know who holds the future? Or do we get anxious about our future and we start managing and controlling our life? Do we get stressed out about our job and then we realize, no, God will give us whatever we need? Or do we get stressed out about our job and then we overwork? Are we worried about money and then we're like, oh no, but I know God will provide? Or do we worry about money so we hoard it and save it, manipulate it into multiple portfolios so that we'll never go poor? Never learn to trust God. Never give our money away. What do we do? You see, it's not about having anxiety or not having anxiety. Often you can't help that. It's about what you do with the anxiety, and this is exactly what Jesus is here to say. This is precisely where he wants to lead us. What is Jesus saying? Number one, he's asking us to consider the damage anxiety does. See, he's not downplaying it. He's not saying, don't worry, it's fine. Don't worry about anxiety. It's all good. Just chill. He actually sees the damage of it. Look at the scriptures in verses 27 and 34, the verses from the chapter we were looking at, chapter 6. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. You see, worry, Jesus is saying, and anxiety, it's a waste of time no matter what happens. If the thing you worried about comes true, you say this phrase, why was I worrying in the first place? Right? Now, if it does come true, how did worrying about it ever help you receive its coming? You see, whether the thing we dread ends up becoming true or not, we've actually wasted our time when we worry about it. When we worry about it, we waste our time. While worry doesn't add time to your life, Jesus says, who by worrying will add any time to your life? While worrying doesn't add a time to your life, it does subtract from time in our life. Actually, physiologically it does, right? At some level, it won't add to your life, but it will take away from your life. It will subtract from your life, which is why Jesus leads us, number two, to cast all anxieties on the loving Father. Cast all anxieties onto your loving Father. I love what he starts saying in this passage in verse 26 and verse 30. He says, are you not more valuable than all these things I'm talking about? He gives examples of birds of the air, grass of the field, lilies of the field. He says, aren't you of more value? Don't you have a different relationship with God than a bird? Don't you have a different relationship with God than your grass that you mow? God cares about you, therefore, cast your anxiety. He says, he will not much more clothe you. He calls us, you of little faith, you of little trust. You see, small worries and big worries, health concerns and traffic concerns, are literally to be thrown up to God. That's what it means. The word cast literally means to toss up, to hurl. Just throw them up to God. Anytime you feel them, cast them to the Lord. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, not over the hand of God. A lot of you live your life over the hand of God. You're trying to manipulate him. It never works. I just tell people, wrestle with God. You'll lose. So, you know, do that, okay? But you'll lose. You have to know. 
under the mighty hand of God. At the proper time, he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting, there's that word again, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How about Philippians, Paul's letter? Philippians 4, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about every, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love it. Don't be anxious about any, anything, but in everything be in prayer. His, his line in verse 5 there, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You see, guys, if we, um, if we are constantly anxious, people will be pretty unconvinced that God is God. If we're the Mzungu culture, spinning around in circles, toiling to no expense, people will be like, what's the good news about having God in your life? At some level, we need to be setting our minds and placing our minds in prayer by casting our anxieties. Here's what it means. You and I need to not only pray about our anxieties, but our anxiety. Okay? Don't just pray about what you're anxious about, but also pray that you are anxious. Is this, okay, does this make sense? You're, you're to say, God, please provide for me. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. God, please provide for me in my sobriety. And then at the same time, you can tell God, God, I'm worried I can't stay sober. God, I'm worried that you won't provide. I want you to provide. God, give me my daily bread. But also, God, I'm anxious and concerned that you won't. That's about praying your anxieties and also praying your anxiety. Both need to be operating. I learned this from my good friend Taylor Luters, who leads worship up here, the mustachioed worship leader. Yes. He's struggled through his life with anxiety. And I texted him uh, this week and talked to him. I said, I really want to share how you've taught me in this area. And he was like, yeah, do it. The, the way that Taylor has led me in this has been so helpful. What Taylor does is he often just acknowledges the anxiety. And he says it here on stage in our prayer circle last week. Things were a little crazy leading up to baptisms. We got into the circle uh we were talking about the production meeting that we have every every sunday morning just talking through the service and he said guys things feel crazy i feel anxious i feel like the service is not gonna go well <laughs> i feel the impending doom that anxiety brings but he said this he goes but i also know that's not true and god will work i'm not scared i'm just excited He's taught me that actually some of the same feelings we feel about anxiety are the exact same feelings we feel about excitement. And so he goes, sometimes I just trick myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm anxious, but really God's saying I'm going to work. And guess what happened last week? God worked. We had baptisms. It was awesome. Everything worked well. How instructive is that? Not only saying this is what I'm anxious about. I'm anxious that the service won't go well. But also just I am anxious right now. And how putting that forward into the light helps the power of darkness recede. And so some of you got to get in your groups midweek, and you got to say, I'm anxious. I'm struggling to trust the Lord in this. It's not all easy. 
I don't know why we do this in Christian culture where we just have these caveats all the time. We have all these caveats that say, oh, no, 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 well, I, you don't have to pray for me. I'm fine. Like, no, no, but I trust God. I trust God. Like, no, hey, it's okay for two things to simultaneously be true. You think the world's going to end and God doesn't. It's okay for those two things to sit side by side. You think everything's crashing around you. God doesn't think that. It's okay for those two, two things to coincide. The third thing Jesus has said, remember the Father's universal provision. You have to see Jesus' words here. He says, look at the birds, consider the lilies. Those words, look and consider. You actually need to follow Jesus in this way. Actually look, actually consider the things around you that God is providing. A key question in this whole text is the question, who is your provider? Who do you really believe is giving you the things that you have? And again, I know we want to say and think about starving people throughout this world and say, Chris, God's universal provision. But remember, when we look at the faces of those who are suffering and starving, oftentimes we ask the question, where is God in this? When we should be asking the question, where is his enemy? God is alongside those who suffer. Don't get me wrong. He is near to the brokenhearted. But when we see injustices and tragedies, we often look for God when we should look for his enemy. The rebelliousness against God, the spiritual powers that are at work, and the men and women who manipulate people, destroy governments, and harm people. It's not God. It's his enemy. So remember God's universal provision in these ways. Consider the lilies. Look at this. Consider God's provision in nature. God is currently meeting the needs of billions of people and things in his creation. When we worry, we say, not me. God is providing for life across this earth. The fact that we live in a habitable planet for now. That we live in an environment where we don't die and get snatched into vapor or a black hole like we just photographed. God is holding and sustaining life. And when we worry, we make ourselves the exception. When we worry, we say, God's providing for everyone but not me. Consider God's provision also in your past and thirdly, in your present. Consider God's provision in your past. I think a lot of times God has provided for you and you just never recognized it. Ah, you ascribed it to you, didn't you? You got that job, didn't you? Yeah, you're that good, I know. We're all really impressed. Um, You saved the right investments. Yep, you're in charge of the markets, well done. Um, No, all of the small ways, you see, we want to blame God for the bad things in our life and we want to take credit for the good things. When have you done a quick history of your life and realized that maybe God actually gave you a lot of things you never did yourself? Particularly, let me give you this one. You were not chosen to be born. That's a free one. You weren't like, today sounds like a good day to come into existence. I shall exist. The foolishness of humanity that believes they're their own author of life, to me, from the perspective of heaven, is utterly stupid. God is the author of life. 
your past and your present has been brought forth and sustained by an author of life. When you worry, you say, no, it hasn't. God is currently taking care of you right now in your present. As a pastor, I've learned this through those who are ill, surprisingly. Those who are sick in hospital visitations that I've done, I often learn that people have a deep understanding of God's current provision in their life. You would think they wouldn't. You would think, I mean, this is how I think I would, if I was gravely ill, I would think God is currently not providing for me. But it's strange how the Holy Spirit enters into people's lives and shows them the way that God is providing for them. I've learned this as I've sat with people in hospitals. They say things like, I'm here. I'm alive. I've got another day. There's a perspective that they've been given from heaven that is deposited into my life. I go, yeah, God is currently providing me breath in my lungs. Provision is strange. We often miss it. We often overlook it. I remember eight years ago, my wife and I were just in our first year of marriage. We were looking ahead at our life and in a season of worry. My wife was entering into medical school. And it was so daunting looking ahead of, at it. Four years of hundreds of thousands of dollars of tuition plus interest on top of that. Five years after that where she would train and not make that much money. We were 23. None of our family was able to provide tuition for us. And so we were going to take it all ourselves. And on top of all of this, I had chosen the illustrious career of youth pastor. <laughs> if I have to tell you, I will. I was not making much. <laughs> I remember being concerned. Allie came home from a particular financial meeting that really forecast the doom. And we were like concerned. And we started early in our marriage there to pray about our anxieties and our anxiety. God, we're struggling to trust you. How is this going to work? And I don't have a story where, like, somebody came up to me and was like, Chris, I am Mr. Warbucks, and <laughs> I would like to pay for your medical school for your wife or something. Nothing like that happened. Uh, we went through it, debt. We're going to be paying off for a long time. But I was concerned about so many things. I was concerned even about the season of life I'm in right now. I remember thinking at 23, when I'm in my 30s, I'm going to be, what is going to happen? I'm going to be poor. But slowly, God just provided. And through my marriage, Allie and I have adopted this mantra I want to give to you. It's very simple, not worded very eloquently or anything, but I do believe it's profound. And it's just this. We say this to each other all the time. God will give us what we need. We started saying that through our marriage. God will give us what we need when we would worry. When one of us worries, one, the other one usually says, God will give us what we need. And notice, we say God will give us what we need, not what we want. God will give us what we need. Say that in your communities. Say that to your roommates. When your spouse is anxious, say it in prayer. God, you will give us what we need. And that mantra has transformed my marriage and to where I ha I'm at this point, I was talking to Allie about this this week, where I just go, I don't even know how I got here. Like, I feel so overwhelmingly blessed, so overwhelmingly provided for. What was I worrying about? And don't get me wrong, we, we went through some 
difficult season. We moved down here. I didn't have a job. You know, we went through some seasons where we, either of us was looking for work or not making much money. You know, it, it, it's, it's been relatively difficult, but relatively, I know people in this room, you've probably gone through much worse moments of peril. Now, I remember when I was 19 and my family was falling apart and no money was coming to me. And I remember being worried, just like, I'm 19, I got to pay for school, do I drop out of college? I mean, and then all of a sudden, the older you get and the more you hang out with older, wiser people, you realize how strange provision is. That God gives you a thousand little things that you miss. He rarely comes in with the big check. He rarely comes in with the dramatic displays. But consider the lilies. Consider the birds of the air. They don't toil and spin in circles. They don't live like a mzungu. They instead live as if God will provide. And sometimes you don't see it right away, but for the most part, provision arrives in a surprise, like it's arrived in my life. Every couple months, I look around at my life and I go, what? You know, one of the things that actually shocks me is that I live in the Bay Area. <laughs> that should shock all of us with the housing prices. Like, we live here? <laughs> like, my house isn't anything special, but I'm like, dude, I live here. <laughs> It's insane that God would provide. You see, you realize as you take into introspection and into prayer this really important truth. You've never done it alone. America wants you to think you have. Even if you're not a Christian, may I speak this word to you. You've never done it alone. Finally, the admonition from Jesus is to seek the kingdom and God's righteousness. This is the fourth thing he's saying. Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. I would memorize that. It sounds a little King Jamesy, but let me break it down. What does it mean to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness? God's kingdom is about God's work and will in the world. God's righteousness is about his nature and character. One are related to the, related to the other. So two helpful questions as you look at his kingdom and his righteousness. The first one with his kingdom, a helpful question is this. Where is God at work in someone else's life? That might seem strange. Where is God at work in someone else's life? You see, it helps. I've learned this as a pastor because I get to see it. It actually helps to see God's activity in others when you can't see it in yours. Now, this is slippery, right? Because a lot of us see God's activity in someone else's life, and it causes bitterness and cynicism. It's an amazing opportunity for the enemy. I see people take it all the time. I'll give you just a brief example. Within my midweek group that my wife and I lead on Wednesday nights, We've seen how looking at someone else's provision in their life can actually build your faith if you have the maturity. My group has this maturity that I've watched where one was struggling with a health concern. We prayed for the healing. The healing came. It built the felt faith of someone else in my group who had a similar health concern. 
that we should pray for that person because they saw God's kingdom at work. What does it mean to seek the kingdom? It means to see, have the eyes to see God's work that's happening outside of you. The enemy wants you to spiral into selfishness, to go down the drain, to consider yourself and yourself only. But to seek God's kingdom is to have your eyes up and out. Where is God at work in this world? To see his power, to see his majesty, and not turn that into cynicism, but celebration. When you're able to turn that into celebration, you can now trust God and say, he will provide. And I'll tell you, now my midweek group prays pretty strongly because we've seen the kingdom and we're seeking the kingdom and everything else will be added into us. Secondly, not only where is God at work in someone else's life, but who do I know God to be in scripture? That's about his righteousness, which is his nature and his character. You will find all through the pages of this book particularly in the life of Jesus. We're going through that in the gospel reading plan right now. But the Old Testament really is mostly where you see this, the long story of God's beautiful righteousness, of his nature and his character. Who do I know God to be in scripture? The story of God in all of scripture is him providing for his people time and time again. Moses, reflecting on, the, on God's faithfulness to Israel after slavery in Egypt, says this, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24. O Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty work, um, uh, can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Then, a couple chapters later, he tells his people this in Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord, your God, brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Friends, we need the imagination and the memory to think about God in the way Moses was thinking about God and encouraging the people of Israel to think about God. He said, consider in your life, you were a slave. You are now no longer a slave. This is what has happened. You watch the seas part. Consider, think about God's character and nature. Because he did this, he won't let you down. He won't give up on you. He won't tail off. And you might say... Well, Chris, that's easy for Israel. They had the rescue from slavery. They were shown miracles I will never see. They had unique experiences in the past where they could see the miraculous work of God. The seas split. Locusts rampaged their city. Water turned to blood in the front of their eyes. God provided something uniquely for them to encourage their trust. They had a miracle. And we don't. Now is your time to look at, again at history and again at God's redemption, see there a man upon a cross, bloody and broken, the man who in the garden before he died sweat drops of blood because he was so troubled in his soul, see on the cross the anxious one, see on him was not just the physical effects of suffering, not just the blood and the broken bones, not just the anxiety of a fried brain, but the spiritual effects. As scriptures say, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. How can we be sure and just as sure as the Israelites? Because just as God provided for one nation the freedom from political captivity, so God provided for all nations in Christ freedom from spiritual captivity. Anxiety is no longer something we hold, but something Christ held for you on the cross. Do you believe? Can you, can you see his mighty provision in the cross? That nothing is left on the ground. You see, the phrase echoed throughout church history is correct. 
God is able. Across all of your story, past, present, and future, God is able. Across your finances and your children, God is able. This is the refrain that the black church has used through their history. And when you consider the strength of that confession across their history, you will find strength in yours. The black church and the gospel music throughout all of American history has been this phrase, God is able. And a song from 1947 was written by the Reverend William Herbert Brewster. He says this, As pilgrims, we sometimes journey. We often know not which way to turn, but there is one who knows the road, who will help us carry, who will help us carry every load. He is able. He is able. He is able. After the cross, on this side of redemption, we see the plain truth. There is nothing God cannot provide for. He's accounted for it all, carrying the burden alone. If God has done that, will not all these things be added unto you? Communion here at the front is where we see this provision. It is both literally and spiritually our daily bread. In the bread, we see the broken body of Jesus, and in the cup, we see the covenant, the new covenant of relationship with us. In communion, we see that we need not be anxious about our life, what we will eat or what we will drink, because as we eat and as we drink of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the Lord's work. He will provide because he has provided. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need you. We need your provision. We need your help, God. God, we cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. God, we throw our concerns to you because you are our loving Father. And simultaneously, we confess our anxieties. Lord, it reveals that we don't trust you. It reveals that we struggle. And yet, this good word reveals that you can handle it. And so, Lord, as we partake of your communion, as we partake of the bread and the cup, may we physically sense the provision of you, Jesus. We need you now. Meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.